Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. We've been going through the Sermon on the Mount. This is our second week, so we're in chapter 5 this week. Uh, last, chapter 6, I'm sorry, um, Pastor Marshall covered chapter 5 last week, and I can tell you uh, that was one of the most challenging sermons I've ever personally heard. Um, it wrecked me several times. Like, I listened to it like four times last week to try to process everything that the word was being spoken. And so that's part of my prayer today is that, well, I'm, I'm not going to be arrogant and say that's going to continue, but my, heart, my, my prayer is that we would continually be challenged as we go, up, go through these next couple of weeks because I cannot think of a more appropriate three chapters to be studying in 2021 than the, Mount, the Sermon on the Mount. Because look outside. Look out your window. Things are crazy right now. When we thought 2020 was cool, it was fun at the beginning, then it was like, oh, wait, this is insane. And it just kind of tumbled down, and 2021 is trying to up 2020. And what we need right now are people on the Word of God saying, I'm willing to submit myself to something other than that. Submit my life to something that actually directs my path and doesn't make it like mud. So that's what I'm hoping for today. Because there's a demand on the Sermon on the Mount. There's something that Jesus is trying to get across. And that demand is a change of life that is radically different than one that we're currently living. And so there's a question that we have to ask ourselves. If we're kind of going through this process. And if we don't, we're not asking it, maybe we're doing it wrong. And that's the question. Are we doing it wrong? Because that's what I think Jesus is trying to get across. He certainly said that in chapter 5. Look, you've heard it said, do this. Now I'm saying, I'm coming to earth and I'm saying, I want you to do this. If you're going to carry my name, because later on they're going to start calling you little Christians, little Christ, and call you Christians. If you're going to carry that mantle, if you're going to wave that flag, this is how I want you to live. And that's what he's doing through the Sermon on the Mount. Because remember what he said last week in chapter 5, 13. He said, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. That's our warning our question, are we doing it wrong? Have we lost our saltiness? So let's explore that concept as we continue in Matthew chapter 6. Chapter 6, 1 through 4. Beware of practicing your righteousness before the people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be done in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, if you were here last week or you did listen to the podcast or you've been reading your Bible, you may think to yourself, Jesus just contradicted himself. Because just a few verses earlier, he made a point in chapter 5 to say that we should be doing our good works before men. Let your light shine before men. But right here he's saying, hold up, beware of letting your righteousness shine before men. So there's one point that I, I kind of have to uh, point out here is this. There's an understanding, as we're reading here, that you are giving to the needy. Like nowhere here is there like Jesus trying to urge people to give. They're already doing it. So my, my plea here is if like don't hear this and say, oh, well, I don't have to give to the needy. I, I, I want to make sure I'm not doing my righteousness before men, so I'm not going to give to the needy. That's not the point. If you're giving to the needy, continue giving to the needy. The question here is how are we doing that? What does it look like? So this word righteousness in the Bible has several meanings. 
depending on how you use it, can apply to different things. So number one, on one hand, righteousness has an element of justification. So as a believer, because of Jesus, we know that what he did on the cross, his life and death and resurrection, his life justified us before Christ. And we as believers take on his righteousness before God. That's one element of righteousness. On the other hand, though, righteousness can also have an element of our integrity, our virtue, purity of life, how we think and feel and act. And so there's a kind of a churchy term here. It's called piety. It's how we are walking out our faith. And what, if you remember this in the, in the story of Abraham in Genesis, Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. So that's that justification part. But then later it says, God says about Abraham, for I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to do what? To keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. So the Lord may bring to Abraham what he had promised. So then Jesus says here, those are those two elements, justification and righteousness being applied. So when Jesus says here, beware of practicing your righteousness, he's speaking not just to your good works, but your religion too. He's saying, how are you presenting Jesus to the rest of the world? When I was a teenager, I got saved at 18. It was a fairly radical salvation experience. And I went from this very angry teenager who was doing a lot of drugs and a lot of drinking to this they call me Dancing Man. That was my nickname. I don't do any dancing anymore because my back hurts. I'm you know, getting closer to 40 here. Um, but I like when I went to high school, I was, you know, like I got saved midway through my junior year. I did this thing. It was so silly. I look back now. I'm just like, oh my gosh, you were such an idiot. So I would walk around the halls of Leon, uh, Lincoln High School, go Trojans, and I would walk around with my Bible in my hand. I would just walk around. Because I thought I was cool. Like, this is my new identity. It's I'm a Christian. I want people to see I'm a Christian. I would also read my Bible in class because any good Christian rebels against their teachers and reads their Bible in class, right? That's our identity. We're, 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 we're rebels. So stupid. And I also had this shirt that's called um, Body Piercing Saved My Life. And on the back, it had two hands of Jesus with piercings. The goal wasn't for me, like, there was no submission to, like, I'm going to go share Jesus with people because I want them to be as broken as I am broken and to be as happy and be as joyful about what God's done in my life. I wanted people to see the change. I didn't want to do the hard work of actually sharing Jesus with people. And it didn't really change. Like, 10 years later, I kind of in my 20s did some stupid stuff, more stupid stuff. And in the late my 20s, I came out of that, and I spent like a good two or three years trying to rebuild my identity because I was so fearful that everybody had seen all that stupidity, and they no longer saw me how I wanted them to see me. So I spent all my time on Facebook or Twitter, wherever it was, trying to convince people that I was a follower of Jesus again. Do you see the error in my ways? I didn't do the hard work of going to people and trying to build relationships back. I wanted them to see my righteousness, not Jesus. And in the modern Christian right now, right, what would that look like for us? Right? What does our righteousness before men look like? Well, in some ways, WWJD bracelets. Remember how important those were? Because you would walk around, you could wear your WWJD bracelet, and everybody knew you were a Christian at that point, but it didn't matter how you were living, did you ever look down and say, what would Jesus do in this moment? And it actually prevent you from doing anything stupid? Probably not. We have our Jesus fishes on the back of our car as we zip through Tallahassee, flipping people off because they're cutting through it. How about this one? This is, man, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, but we want to be the loudest in worship. Hey. <laughs> Ask my mom. Ask my mom. Uh, but it's not because we're so overjoyed with what Jesus is doing, because we want everybody to hear how great our voice sounds. Hey. How about this one? We want to spread water everywhere. That's awesome. Desiring leadership and authority over servanthood. Jesus takes it to the hardest level and says, Don't even let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, which is an impossibility. There's nothing that I can do with my right hand that this one doesn't know what's happening. 
So here's the kicker, right? Appearances can fool me. I pretty much, I'm, for the most part, I know most people in here, not everybody. We've grown as a church, so it's hard for me to know everybody in this building. And I feel, feel that I'm a pretty good judge of character. I can kind of sense as I talk to somebody what they're about, but I can be fooled. Appearances can even fool your spouse or your friends. But Jesus says something here. Your father who sees in secret will reward you. What a harrowing thought. Because I'm doing all of this stuff. If I'm standing up here this right, right now, if I'm doing this right here, right now, to impress you, to make you think that I'm a, a wise pastor or whatever, it's folly, man. It's folly. I'm, what is the point? And what Jesus says is, look, if you have lost your saltiness, then you are being prepared to be trampled underfoot. So we have to ask ourselves, am I living my righteousness among men for their approval? Am I doing it wrong? So that's the first question. Let's go on. Let's read uh, Matthew chapter 6, 5 through 8. Now Jesus continues with the Lord's Prayer. I mean, it says, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received the reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty words as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. And then he says, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day, we probably all recite this, give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors and lead us not in temptation, but to deliver us from evil. So Jesus, uh, Marshall used the analogy of the the Sermon on the Mount like a ladder. So we're climbing up this ladder and we get to the point of prayer. Now again, just like with giving to the needy, he's assuming you're praying here. Okay, so keep praying. But ask yourself, how am I praying? But his point is, like, don't look like the hypocrites. Because it's important for us to remember here that um, giving to the needy and prayer were requirements under the law, the Old Testament law, the law of Moses. Farmers were supposed to, when they went through and they cut the wheat down, they were supposed to leave the extra grain that fell to the ground so that the poor could come in and take those grain and they would have something to eat. And prayer was a huge part of Jewish culture. I did some research on this, and I found no less than 70 specific prayers in the Jewish culture for a number of things. Uh, they cover like before and after meals, morning prayers, afternoon prayers, prayers for the government, prayers for rain, prayers for the sick. They even have prayers for like children and the moon and the sun. The most famous of probably all Jewish prayers is what we call, or what is known as, the Shema. And you find this in Deuteronomy chapter 6, 4 through 5. And it's a section of scripture that the Jewish people would read and pray over themselves morning and at night. So Jesus is not upset here that people are praying. He's actually quite happy with it. He loves prayer. But what he's most concerned with is the heart behind it. And so here's another story about my life. So when I was in fifth grade or sixth grade, something like that, we went to this church in Mobile, Alabama. That's where I'm from. And I remember going, and it was one of those churches that, you know, uh, the kids go to church in the, in the beginning, and then they get dismissed after worship. And I remember every, it was odd how this works. There was this guy that sat in the balcony above us on the, it was like one of those double-layer churches, and he always stood right, right on the edge. He'd get right on the edge, and at the end of every service, this is really bizarre, he would have a, a word in tongues, and then he would interpret it. And he would stand on the edge so everybody could hear it. And I remember being like 11 or 12 years old thinking to myself, and I didn't even know probably what this word meant, and I probably didn't use the word, but I remember going, that guy's a hypocrite. Like in my head, I was thinking, this guy's just doing this because he wants everybody to hear him. I was 11 or 12 years old. So Jesus it seems focused on the repetitiveness, that babbling almost, the emptiness of our prayers. He says, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles. Some translations, we read from the ESV, but it says, do not keep babbling like pagans. 
And the King James Version, though we don't read the these and the thous, says vain repetitions. Now this is probably lost on us because we don't really hear pagans pray, but in the first century it was very common to hear pagans repeating these, very, these various types of prayers. The problem is, just like with that guy who sat up in that balcony so everybody could hear him, is there was no connection between the mind and the mouth. I mean, think about this. Anybody go to the gym? Have you ever heard the term uh, mind-muscle connection? So if you go to the gym and you're going to work a, a certain muscle group, you should be thinking about what muscles lifting the, the weight. Because if, if I see somebody at the gym and they're, and they're just doing this, right, and I ask them, what are you doing? They're like, I'm doing a bicep curl. And I'm, I would be thinking to myself, no, that's not a bicep curl. That's not even your bicep. What are you doing here? This is just flailing your arms about. Some sort of tricep movement, right? I mean, that's what we should be doing when we pray. Our mind should be connected to our heart. Someone out of the abundance of the heart that speaks. It shouldn't be just babbling words that mean nothing. There should be thought behind our prayers. There should be heart behind our prayers. There should most definitely be something behind our prayers. So Jesus wants, again, our mind and our mouth to be connected. We should have a purpose. And for those, he's, Jesus, what he's doing here is he's giving us a, a, an example of how we should pray for those who struggle with it. I think it's kind of funny that he says that we should avoid repetitive prayers, but then gives us a prayer that we can just be repetitive about. So again, this is like the error sometimes when we go through Scripture. Because Jesus said, pray like this. That means this is the only way we should pray. Remember, he said, when you pray, pray like this. Not only pray this. Now, something I've been doing since I've read this is kind of was quickened on my heart. Every night before I go to bed, I pray this prayer. And before my feet hit the floor in the morning, I pray this prayer. Because I believe Jesus is trying to give us something to settle our mind before we begin our day. So let's go through them step by step. So in the beginning, he starts off with hallowed be thy name. Now that word hallowed, nobody really uses that term anymore. It's where we get the word holy, sanctified, you know, that, that, that you are you're a renowned. So first, again, our prayers should glorify the name of the Father. And for the Christian, especially in today's time, our counterculture movement is to hold God, God in high esteem and holiness. We should claim that his name is above all names. We don't diminish him to some bearded guy in the sky that has no connection with his creation. Yes, he is holy. Yes, he is renowned, but he's also our father. Then as we pray, we should ask for his kingdom to come so his will will be done. Notice, it's not our kingdom and our will. There's only one kingdom that we submit to and only one will. And it certainly isn't ours. And so that kingdom of heaven on earth is Jesus. When, when he says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, Jesus is the embodiment of God on earth. He is heaven on earth. So what in essence what we're praying is that we are praying the gospel over our lives each day. We're saying, Father, you are holy, and let your Son, Jesus, envelop my life. Let the things of heaven be done on earth, and let your will overtake my own. And he finishes this little section, and he, he hits our posture, and he goes three different examples. Bread, and forgiveness, and protection. So we should view this daily bread not just as spiritual bread. Jesus, yes, is our spiritual bread, right? He sustains us. He's our bread of life. But there's more something practical about this request. Because maybe in the last 50 years or so, bread was, for the longest time, the very essence of human existence, like life. If you didn't have bread, then you were struggling. That's where we get the term breadwinner. Right now, you can go to McDonald's for two bucks and have a pretty decent meal right? And bread is not as, as important to us anymore, right? So, but what Jesus is saying is that like the source of bread is what we should be concerned about, not the bread itself. Lord, give us this day our daily bread. So he's saying, look, who is your source of your bread, your stuff? Is it you and your desires and the things that you want to do, or is it coming from me? Have you felt like you've built your own little kingdom on earth? 
and it's you who supply your own needs? Or do you see it like it's all of the things that you have come from the Father? And then he talks about trespasses and forgiveness. And we didn't read it, but I'll read it real quick. It's uh, 14 and 15. And he says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So Pastor Marshall tucked on touched on forgiveness a little bit last week, but one of the main character traits of a Christian is in our ability to forgive. But sometimes we too narrowly view forgiveness as forgiving somebody who has hurt us. So let's look at that word trespass for just a second. Trespass actually has two different meanings. One, yes, it can mean forgiving somebody of a lapse of sin or misdeed. But what I think we should do, and what Jesus is always doing, is taking the concept that we just learned to the next level. For just a moment, let's take our emotion out of forgiveness. Somebody heard us. Let's take that out. Trespass also meaning means to forgive somebody who has fallen by something. So what, is, what does that mean for us? We should, our, our, our posture should be gracious to the broken. We should see the world not as a pagan sinners who have fallen and they're just evil, but they are just broken people who need Jesus just as much as you did and still do. That's what we should take away when it talks about trespasses. But when we see sinners as other, when we start separating them and we're like, oh, we're Christians over here, so we're good. They're other. I don't need to touch them. We've lost our saltiness. We've lost our saltiness. Lastly, Jesus looks at temptation and he says, I've read some commentaries on this, um, and they say that, you know, when you're translating the Bible, it's, it's translating from one language to another, so the sentence structure is completely different. So they believe one way you could read this is to say it like this, deliver us from evil or the evil one when we are tempted. Again, the expectation is you're going to be tempted. If Jesus was you're going to be tempted. So it's not the when or the how. It's going to happen. The question is, how are you going to react when you're tempted? There's probably some of you are being tempted right now. You're like, can this guy just go on? It's the Lord's Prayer. I've heard this a thousand times. Can he just keep talking? Just keep going. So I'm going to just get on my phone and go through Facebook, see what Twitter, look at the football game from last night. Look, at Red Hills, we put a high emphasis on prayer. We're a church. We're believers in Jesus. We put a high emphasis on prayer. Maybe to some people, we don't put enough. But I, we highly recommend our members to pray. If you go to Slack, that's our inner communication software tool that we use. The prayer channel is by far, statistically, the most active channel on Slack. Our people like to pray. They like to put prayer requests out there. But my desire as one of the pastors of this church is that we would, this year, 2021, would be a year that we grow in our desire and heart for prayer. That when we open up at the end of service and we say, come to the altar and get prayer, there are so many people seeking prayer, not because they want to impress people, because they're broken for Jesus, that we don't have enough people to pray for them. I pray that we would be driven, as Jesus said, into our prayer closets, broken on our knees. Because here's the thing. I hear people talk about this all the time. They want to see the world change. They want to see revival. If you want to see America change right now in this 2021, it's going to start with prayer. It's not going to start with how you... It's not going to start with that, I can tell you. It's going to start with prayer. I'm trying to be careful here, guys. All right, let's pick up in verse 16. Fasting. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward, but when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may be seen, not by, sorry, may not be seen by others, but your Father who is in secret. Again, he says it again, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus completes this process, this list of ways we should look at our piety by looking at how we should fast. Now, fasting is a way for us as, as humans 
to deny our bodies food, specifically food. You can fast other things, but in Jesus' time, this is specifically food. So that your mind and your spirit could be focused and totally reliant on Jesus or God. But apparently there was something that these people were doing that really did not hit the heart of behind why we fast. Because he says it right there, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Now, fasting may be not how we do this in 2021, but we all know this type of person. These are the people who cannot suffer in silence, if you know what I mean. They walk around and they've got this... Oh, woe is me, look on, our, on their faces. They look like, like Eeyore. Every Facebook post is looking, seeking for attention, putting all of their business that should never be on the internet, on the internet, so that they can desire for someone to put in the comment section, no, you're awesome, you're wonderful, you're beautiful, you're this, this, whatever they're seeking. We, we know these type of people. And Jesus is saying, look, what are they doing it for? There's there's no brokenness behind it. There's no repentance. They just want people to like them more. Just like with feeding the needy in prayer, Jesus is pointing out that part of our problem is that even when we are trying to do good, our motivations can be impure. If we aren't careful, if we aren't doing the hard work and this is not easy, of keeping our hearts in check in an instant. Your eyes, your eyes, your heart can switch from seeking the approval of only one person, being Jesus, to seeking whatever you want from somebody else. It can happen like that. And we have to be shifting back to center. Because why do you think, this is kind of funny, but it's true, why do you think social media accounts have that little heart, the little thumbs up? Why do you think they have it there? Because they know the human heart wants to be liked. We want to be told that whatever we post, whatever we think is approved by somebody else. And if you get five people to say what you just said, which was cruel and hurtful towards somebody, if you get enough likes, you think you were right. And so you'll do it again. And you'll do it again, and you'll get more likes. Then all of a sudden, you have a little bit of a following. And then now, all of a sudden, this group of people who are staring into darkness, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself, have now approved of whatever you're doing, and now you're not looking at Jesus, you're looking into darkness. Y'all, hmm. got to be careful. Matthew 6, 19 through 24. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. The eye, the, the eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in, your, in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Let's read that one again. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus doesn't stop with process because anybody can get good at giving prayer and fasting. And I don't mean that in derogatory term. I mean like spiritually good, like you love Jesus. So you give well, you fast well, and you pray well. But Jesus says if you really want to find out the measure of a man, the character of a person, find out where he stores his treasure. Are they storing up things for this world or is their eyes fixed on things of heaven? I want to be clear here. Nowhere here is Jesus saying you can't have stuff. I've heard this sermon preached so many times, and all of a sudden now we have to be minimalist and we have to give away all of our stuff. Okay, that's not what Jesus is saying here. Maybe I'm doing this selfishly because I like stuff. I like technology. I like, I like things. He's not asking how much stuff do you have. He's asking does it own you? Is it your master? 
Because if you were asked, like the rich man in the Bible, to give it all up, could you? And right now, you're probably like, yeah, I'll do that. I'll do that. I'll do it for Jesus. You sure? Are you sure? Because I'm not, I mean, I'd like to say that I would, but I like my stuff. And we got to be honest about where our heart is. And are we willing to give up our stuff for another human being? And he's also asking, as verse 23, we'll read in a second, where are our eyes? It says here, but if your eye is bad, we read it twice, your whole body would be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great will the darkness be? Jesus knows all too well that the tendency of our heart is to stare into darkness, but not know it's darkness. Y'all, that is the whole point of Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve was staring into darkness and they thought it was light. And Jesus says, look, if the light in you is dark, then oh my Lord, how dark is the darkness you're looking into? And you may be saying, like money's not my thing. I don't even have a lot of it. So I'm not concerned with like money is not my like issue here. That's okay, right? But maybe it's a lack of money that's your problem. Because you're constantly looking at other people going, well, Lord, I love you and I, and I serve you. Why does this family have everything? And I'm over here and I'm like barely being able to get ends meet. Why do I look at that marriage and they seem really happy? And my marriage is an absolute dumpster fire. Why are those kids well-behaved? And I'm constantly having to get at my kids because they're not listening, they're not obeying. Why? That's the same darkness, y'all. We're looking at the wrong place because you don't know what's going on in these people's lives. You don't know why they have more money than you. You don't know why their marriage looks good because that's easy to fake too. And you don't know why their kids are good. Because if y'all can figure that one out, please come back to church and tell me because... Look, for some people, that darkness is government. Look, we're not a political church, and we don't stand up here and tell y'all how to vote and who to vote for. That's not what we do at this church. And Lord, I'm trying to get better on not posting stuff on Facebook. I am trying to keep my mouth shut. And I wish I could delete it, but I got to do the social media for the church. So I got to have an account. It's kind of like my Achilles heel here. But there are a lot of people who call themselves Christians, who say I'm a little Christ, and they are staring into darkness, and it is nothing but a black hole. We are a, come, become a nation who is willing to sacrifice relationships and family and all kind of stuff for the sake of insert some political candidate, insert some politician, insert some law or right that you think you have, insert whatever it is. We think it's our right, so we are pushing people aside and saying they are other, and we are right, and y'all, it is darkness. It's a black hole. Friends, can you see it? Can you see what we're doing in 2021? We're losing this country, and it's not because of social media. It's because our hearts are turned to something that's not Jesus. And if it ain't Jesus, stop looking at it. And if I sound angry, I'm sorry, y'all. I'm sorry, but I have nothing left in me. I'm broken over this. I was woken up at fr on Friday at 4 o'clock in the morning, and I was broken. I don't know what else to do because I'm afraid. Not because of some riot. I don't care about that. I'm afraid for our hearts. I'm afraid for the people. Verse 25. I got some water. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, neither so how they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. 
Are you not more valuable than they? And which of you, being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field and how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith. Side point. That's a question mark, not an exclamation point. It's a question, not a statement. Therefore, do not be anxious saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows what you need, and you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself, sufficient for the day in its own troubles. Here's a quick Bible reading tip. Whenever you see the word, therefore, hard stop. And go back and read until you see the next transitional like phrase or word. Because the writer, whether Paul does this a lot, Jesus does it as well. The writer just made a, said a bunch of stuff, and they're about to sum it up. Funny how the last transitional phrase that we read was the last verse in chapter 5. So Jesus says, therefore. So we got to go back all the way to verse 1 of chapter 6 and sum up what he's trying to say in that phrase. Do not be anxious about your life. Because again, I think what Jesus is doing is he's not just summarizing the treasure part that he just said, but the whole of chapter 6. And I want to be careful here. If I haven't been careful enough. I may not get to preach again. I don't know. I'll ask Marshall later. There's a lot of people right now, probably sitting right here, that deals with clinical anxiety. Like, it's, they can't control it. And, they, and they've gone to the doctor and they're trying to get help. I'm not going to stand up here and be that pastor that says, oh, you have anxiety? Oh, you have depression? Well, where's your faith? Why don't you have enough faith? Can't you just believe more? You know, that's, that's garbage. That's garbage preaching. I want to be thoughtful behind this. Because, right, while I agree, there is a certain amount of lack of faith when it comes to why you're anxious, right, or why we don't maybe have enough faith or why we don't put enough trust in God because we want control over things. So we don't want to have faith. We don't want to actually give it up to God. We want control over it. If everything I'm doing in life is a veiled attempt to impress men, if my prayers are so that everybody else can hear them, if my doing, my giving to the needy is so that y'all can think that I'm cool and you know, love people, if I'm suffering so that you can just for attention, if I'm storing up treasures on earth and not in heaven, how anxious do you think I'm going to be? Who can handle all of that? You're going to be a ball of emotion trying to, you know, this is this life part of my life and I'm trying to measure it all and figure it all out. That's anxiety. And maybe you aren't worried about like what you're going to eat or drink or clothes. There's a water fountain over there, y'all. If you're thirsty, go drink. I don't see any naked people in here, thank God. Okay? And I, I'd like to say I, I know where my next meal's coming from, right? Like, like, come on. We know a lot of us aren't sitting here starving to death. So this isn't really our issue. But maybe you're in debt to your eyeballs and you know that next thing that clears is going to send you into a tailspin of bunch of junk and you're going to be spending the next three, four weeks trying to climb yourself out of that. That's going to bring some anxiety. Maybe you're hiding sin in your life. I don't know what it is. Pornography, adultery. Maybe you're just like living a completely different life outside of church or family than you should be. Maybe you're, maybe you have an improper relationship at church. It's not, I'm not church, at, at work. It's not a, an affair, but you certainly, you know, you kind of flirt with that person a little bit more than you should. Don't you think that's going to bring some anxiety in your life? Because you're staring into darkness and not at Jesus? Here's a one. Maybe you're watching just too much news. Maybe you need to turn that thing off. Maybe you need to stop looking at coronavirus 
statistics. Not because it's not real. It's real. But because it brings a level of anxiety and it changes where you're focusing on. You're so consumed with who's wearing a mask and who's not. Who would have thought mask would have been like a, some sort of like morality? Like who's the good person? Who's the bad one? You're looking at protests and you're wondering if these people are right or these people who are protesting are right. Y'all, are they coming for my guns? Are they going to leave them alone? It's like, ah, of course we're all freaking out because we can't stop looking at the news. It's not helping us. Let's turn it off. Now, some astute reader would read this and think to themselves, wait, hold on, Jesus. Hold on, hold on. You said, look at the lilies of the field and the birds, aren't they more than you? Like, like more important than us. Less important, I'm sorry. And if I'm going to, you're going to feed them and clothe them and f- you're going to feed us too. But I'm looking at the world and I see a bunch of hungry, thirsty, naked people. Why? Why, God, why? And that person will draw from the scripture that God is a liar. Let me tell you, clearly, God is not the problem. We're the ones doing it wrong. Jesus finishes his thought. I'm going to break that down in here. Jesus finishes this section by saying we should seek two things. First, the kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God, and second, his righteousness. Now, we believe the kingdom of God is the reign of King Jesus, sorry. His kingdom on earth, and the one to come. That's the one that we should be seeking, not our own, not our own desires. But then he says, seek his righteousness. Now, normally you'd think, if I'm seeking one, I'm probably seeking the other. So why did Jesus break those two things out? Because remember what he said in verse six, chapter 6, verse 1? Beware of doing whose righteousness? Your righteousness. He didn't say don't beware of doing God's righteousness because that's exactly what he wants us to be doing. He wants you to be giving like he gives. He wants you to love like he loves. He wants you to pray like he prays. He wants you to forgive like he forgives. And he wants you to store up treasures in heaven and not on earth. He wants you to clothe the naked, feed the hungry, and give drink to the thirsty. That's what he wants you to do. Do his righteousness, not yours. Uh, I'm going to draw two conclusions from this, from our how we live. One, Christians call themselves the pro-life movement, right? We're the pro-life group. We are, for the most part, anti-abortion and pro-adoption. We're pro-life. And I ran some numbers and I looked at it and it just tore me up. There are roughly 400,000 to a million kids right now in this country awaiting to be adopted. Millions on the higher number, 400 on the lower end. And roughly 130,000 kids get adopted each year. Think about the rollover effect. Now, 65% of people in this country claim to be a Christian, statistically. They follow some sort of Christianity, 65%. Now, there's 300-ish million people, so I'm going to break this down a little bit. For people 21 and above in America, there's about 196 million of us. 196 million. 65% of 196 million gives us about 165 million. So that means 21 above, there's about 165 million Christians in this country right now. Now, I'm not going to stand here and say that a 21-year-old should, get to, should adopt somebody. And I know there's some people in their 50s and 60s going, I ain't adopting nobody. Can I get adopted? Because, you know, whatever. And I'm sure there's some 45-year-olds who are like, I've, I'm not adopting anybody, right? So let's just narrow this down. Between the ages of 25 and 45 in this country, there's roughly 90 million people. 65% of 90 million gives us about 60 million. Are you, are you tracking the numbers I'm saying? 400,000 kids need to be adopted. 
how many million? 60 million. And we have the audacity to raise a fist to God and say, you're the problem, you're a liar. What's wrong? Come on, y'all. If we wanted to, as a church, we could eradicate a child who doesn't have a father. We could end it like that, 60 million. There's a million kids get roughly a million are aborted every year. Y'all, we don't need to be storming the White House. We should be storming abortion clinics, not with you know, signs that say you're evil going to hell. We should be just begging, no, 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 no. You don't have to do this. I'll take them. I'll be the one to take them. You don't have to do this. If we wanted to, we could end it all, and we don't. 400,000 kids. All right, Abort- adoption. Maybe you are adopted or you've been, ad- I don't know. So let's look at poverty. So use that same number. 165 million people in this country that call themselves Christians. Right now, if two, every single person on this, in this country gave $2, $2, two dollars, two dollars, $330 million, y'all. Do you have $2? That's like a McDonald's meal. All right, so let's ump the ante a little bit and say everybody who calls themselves a Christian in this country can give $5. What's that number? It's $825 million. All right, $5, that's nothing. How about 10 bucks? It's a Chipotle meal. All right, we're going up the ladder a little bit. We're getting better food here. $1.65 billion. Okay, 10 bucks is nothing. I can give up $20. What's that number? It's $3.3 billion. And we have the audacity to ask God why are there hungry kids in this country. That's just a one-time gift, y'all. One time. We call ourselves a Christian country, y'all. We call ourselves a Christian nation. We carry the banner of Christianity to the world. And Jesus and God's up in heaven like, really? Really? Are you really? Because if that's true, and through my providence, I allowed this country to have the greatest wealth that has ever been seen in any nation, any country ever. (laughs) And you're looking to me and asking, why are people clothed? I'm almost at a loss of words. Look, I'm a pastor of this church, and I'm standing before you, my family, and I'm standing before God, and I'm saying, this church is not going to be a church that doesn't clothe the naked and feed the hungry and give water to those who are thirsty. We're going to be a beacon of light in the city. This is what God gave me at 4 o'clock in the morning on Friday. I don't know what it's going to look like. I have no idea. But we're going to pull our resources. We're going to do whatever we have to do in this city to do, to do, do good things, to do what we just talked about. I don't know what it's going to look like, but we're going to do it. And if y'all would just gather with me and follow us, we can do amazing things in this city and we can start doing some change, making an impact. And I'm going to leave us with something here. I'm going to read Matthew chapter 25. We're not going to put it on the screen because I want us to just listen to the warning of Jesus Christ. Because there's sometimes Jesus gives warnings And they're just that. They're a warning. They're figurative. Like, we're not supposed to literally hate our father and our brother and our sister. And, you know, we're not supposed to literally hate them. But sometimes when Jesus gives a warning, he's being absolutely honest. And when he does that, we have to just sit back and just listen. And let it rush over us. Because if we don't do that, if we're unwilling, then we've lost our saltiness. And what are we waiting for at that point, right? If, if we've lost our saltiness and then Jesus says we're good for nothing, we're just going to be waiting to be trampled underfoot. So don't lose your saltiness. Do whatever you have to do to regain it. Okay, so we're going to read chapter, 20, uh, chapter 25, 31 through 45, and then I'm going to pray, and then we're going to open the front for prayer and if you felt a quickening in your spirit to do something, to change your life, come down and get prayer. You don't have to come down to the altar. You can make that change in your seat. Just be willing to ask the question, Lord, am I doing it wrong? And if I'm doing it wrong, how do you want me to do it right? How do I look, stop looking at darkness and how can I look at you? Because here's the thing, y'all. When we, sometimes if we're looking at darkness and it's nothing but darkness, we don't know that it's darkness, we need people in our lives 
who can help us shift our focus back to Jesus. And when we start shutting out opinions that we don't agree with, well then, how do you ever turn back to the light? So I'm standing here, and we're going to read this, and then we're going to pray, all right? Chapter 25, 31. And when the Son of Man comes in all his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by the Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the world. For what? I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink and I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer saying, Lord, when did, you, when did I see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and you give you drink? And he said, a stranger, when you, I'm sorry, and when did you see a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you, he said, and when did we seek you out in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as did, as did to one of the least of these, my brother, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, the goats, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me naked. You did not clothe me sick and in prison. You did not visit me. And they will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison? And did I not minister to you? And he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment for the righteous into eternal life, y'all. Lord, break us. How can we feed your hungry? How can we give clothing to the naked, Lord? How, who can we give thirst to, Lord? Break us. Father, where are we doing it wrong? Lord, I just, I just pray over this congregation, over this church, Lord. Just do something mighty in our midst. Come before us, Lord, and just, just envelop our hearts and say, okay, all right, I know you've been looking into darkness. You're going to look at me now. And from here forward, we're going to move forward. We're going to start doing the work of righteousness, not our own, but his from this day forth. Break us, humble us, destroy us, wreck us for the broken who are, who are hurting and who are needy. Jesus' name.